0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I intend to cover Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. I have decided to call this Rejoice and Find the Peace of God. Our context is this. Paul, in chapter 3, talked to the Philippians about straining to reach the goal. What was the goal? The final glorified state of our resurrection body. And we would obtain that goal by avoiding these legalistic Judaizers, these dogs, these people who mutilated their flesh. He told the Philippians to ignore those people and to live a life in the Spirit. So therefore, he says in Philippians 4, 1 through 3, Therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, was the therefore, therefore, he's referring back to chapter 3 since you should press on and fulfill your heavenly call, the heavenly call, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus, and to attain your final glorification. In order to do that, to attain to the resurrection, you should stand firm. Therefore, my beloved brother, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Don't be seduced by the various factualist and false teachers previously mentioned early in the letter, these dogs, these circumcised, these mutilators of the flesh stand firm against those guys. And Paul calls his beloved brethren his joy and crown. The Philippian church was Paul's reward in ministry. That is the best reward in ministries when you see Christians loving the Lord. That's much better than money, I'll guarantee that. And so then, after... Regaling the Philippians with nice adjectives like beloved and brethren and joy and crown and then he goes to some bad news. Verse 2, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now that living in harmony could mean live in harmony with the Philippian church and quit being at odds with the rest of the church or it could be quit being at odds with each other. I think the more natural reading is is they are fighting with each other. Now, there's nothing worse than a female cat fight. I remember a church in Beijing one time. Two young women fell in love with the same Christian man in the church. And in China, Christian men are rare as hen's teeth. Seventy to eighty percent of the church is women. The women can't find people to marry. Find young men, Christian men to marry. And this apparently was a good guy, and so they both fell in love with him, and they almost tore the church apart, screaming and hollering at each other. And the leaders of the church... And they were young, as most leaders in the Chinese church are. They had to deal with that and had to had to put it to rest. And I remember thinking, gosh, this is so embarrassing for a Christian church to have women fighting over the men. It sounds like high school. Well, I don't know what Euodia and Seneca were fighting about, but whatever it was, they were fellow workers with Paul, as we see in verse 3. So they had worked with Paul, maybe not at the same time, maybe at different times. But for some reason, they got got in each other's hair. Now, this shows that the early church, as much as they obviously loved one another, there were examples of disharmony. We think about Paul and Barnabas in Acts fifteen thirty nine, And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, the famous dissension. They, of course, they later got together, as we see some, by some signatures. And I forgot which epistles that Paul wrote. He mentions Barnabas. So they got back together same with John Mark. Paul and Barnabas and Paul and John Mark got back, he reconciled with each other, but there was some disharmony at some time. Here's a guy that Paul never got back with, Paul and Demas. He writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, that wasn't Paul's fault, of course, but nonetheless, they had some disagreement. So it happens. I mean, you don't think. How about the church at Corinth? Some of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas, some are of, Christ, of the party of Christ. They had all kinds of factions. So, yeah, it, the church is made up of sinners who were being sanctified and having their flesh crucified. And in the process, it can be a little bit nasty sometimes, a little bit unpleasant. But we remember the goal the goal is for our sanctification. It must have been sort of embarrassing for Eodia and Synache to get called out in a public letter. Remember, these letters are not private. They were sent to the whole church. And then to have your names called out as people who are not getting along, I guess the shame that in itself might have made Euodia and Seneca to try to patch up their differences. Now, Paul in verse 3 says something that's a little bit strange. Indeed, true companion. True companion? Who's the true companion? Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So this true companion is supposed to help these women, help them get along, I assume that's what Paul means. Who is the true companion? Ellicott, the commentator, says, this obscure phrase has greatly exercised conjecture. In other words, nobody knows who the true companion is. The Greek is, for companion, is sunzudzek, Sunzuge, which is the vocative, and it's an adjective, so it, and and so it means and it means fellow worker. So, well, it doesn't mean fellow worker because it's an adjective. So it's it's one who is in fellowship with or joined with. So, Strong's transliteration of that word is sisigos. Now, the reason I go to the trouble to tell you what the, trans, what the Greek word is in the translation is, is because one very common solution to this problem of who the true companion is, is to merely say it's a person whose name is Syzygous. Just take the Greek word, transliterate it, and you come up with a proper name. Syzygous means one who is yoked, a yoked person, a yoke fellow. So, it, what Paul could be saying, loyal Sisychus. Now, that's somebody nobody knows who it is, nobody's ever heard of, but we assume it's somebody in Philippi that Paul knew, and it says, look, take care of Yodi and Seneca, try to get them back together. That, to me, is the simplest solution. An old solution, which is mentioned all the way back at the time of Clement of Alexandria in the second century AD, or third century AD, excuse me, was that this loyal companion was Paul's wife. So for some reason, Paul's wife is in Philippi, and he says, indeed, true wife, I ask you to help these women? Uh-uh. Well, for one thing, you have to deal with this verse in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, which was written just a few years earlier. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am, i.e. unmarried. Here's another interesting solution from Adam Clark, or that Adam Clark mentions. Eudoia was a woman, and Syntyche was a man. So Paul calls Syntyche a yoke yokefellow. So he would say, I urge Yodia and I urge Seneca to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true yoke fellow Senecae. Problem with that is the next phrase says, I ask you to help these women. It says these women. Maybe there's a way to translate that differently. I didn't check it because I think this is not a good solution. So I don't know how if you say Seneca is a man married to Eodia, and he is supposed to help these women. I don't know how that works at all. So I'm going to ignore that solution suggested by Adam Clark. Now here's some other solutions. Luke. This is Ellicott. Ellicott mentions Luke. A lot of people think Luke is the true companion because he seems to be closely connected to Philippi in his ministry, and Paul's writing to Philippi. And, of course, Luke was a true companion of Paul. Well, that's reasonable. Some people say it's Lydia because she was the first fruits of the gospel in Philippi. I remember in Acts 16, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to believe? And she was a woman. Maybe she could arbitrate between Euodia and Syntyche. That's reasonable, I guess, Lydia. Ellicott prefers Epaphroditus as the true companion because he was the bearer and maybe the amanuensis of the Philippian letter. But it seems strange to me, in my humble opinion, that while Paul would suddenly address his letter-bearer. Indeed, true companion. He's not writing to Epaphroditus. He's writing to the Philippians, and that seems sort of strained to me. Some people just throw their hands up and say, this is just some unknown friend to Paul. We don't know who it is, nor do we care, and that's probably the way we should leave it right there. Interesting who this true companion was. Indeed, true companion. I ask you to help these women who have shared in my struggles." in the cause of the gospel know that Paul is struggling in the cause of the gospel. He had a lot of trouble getting the gospel out. Prisons, shipwrecks, court trials. Whenever you think you've got it bad, just look at our example who said, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. Look at the trouble he had in his ministry. He calls it a struggle here. And he had to have help. He didn't struggle alone. He had help. And these women, as well as Clement, and some other fellow workers, these women helped him in his struggles. Now here, Paul is asking for the true companion to help Eudoia and Seneca. Sometimes people cannot reconcile without an objective third party to listen and to mediate. That's just human nature. Mediation's a big deal. Now in America, replacing lawsuits even, you just need somebody objective you can talk to. And if you can't find a mediator, it gets real difficult. I've been in such situations where I couldn't find a mediator. It's not good. As I mentioned earlier, Paul mentions the two women as being part of his fellow workers. He says, help these women, together with Clement also, and the rest, uh, the rest of my fellow workers. When he says the rest of my fellow workers, he includes the two women, Euodia and Seneca, as one of his fellow workers. Now, that shows that women can be fellow workers in the cause of Christ, of course. But they don't have to be teachers, elders, and apostles, because teachers and elders were excluded by Paul in 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That means no teaching, no elding, if you will, no pastoring. I wish that evangelical feminists would read that verse and not twist it beyond recognition with, its, with their nonsensical ways of doing it. And as far as apostles, there's no explicit... Prohibition on women being apostles, but there weren't any. I realize that in Romans 16, Junia is mentioned as possibly being an apostle, but it might be Junius, and even if it's Junia, a woman, they were of noteworthy among the uh, they were noteworthy among the apostles. It just means the apostles might have taken special note of her as a remarkable woman, but she wasn't an apostle. So, and besides, if it's just one woman, that the exception proves the rule, in my opinion. So there were no men, women apostles, no more women teachers, or elders. However. They were women fellow workers. Now, here's what Adam Clark says about that quote. Both in the Grecian and Asiatic countries, women were kept much secluded, and it it was not likely that even the apostles had much opportunity of conversing with them. It was therefore necessary that they should have some experienced Christian women with them who who could have access to families and preach Jesus to the female part of them. Now, Clark mentions Asiatic countries. Well, I know, having read Hudson Taylor's seven-volume biography of evangelizing in China, the trouble they had to get into these secluded women to witness the gospel, it was impossible for men to do it. And he would use women to get in there and talk to the, to the women. I remember one story. I don't remember whether it was Hudson Taylor or somebody else, but some missionary in China, a male missionary, was invited into a house a guy and his wife invited him into his house and the next thing you know that wife was laying up next side the missionary and said she wanted to express her appreciation for the gospel that was being presented by offering this missionary her body well that seems sort of unchinese to me and the missionary had to hightail it out of there (laughs) so you know it's always nice to have the women around to deal with the women if you if you need to now clement udodia and sineke were all part of fellow Paul's fellow workers, and they were all written in the Book of Life. That's just a standard metaphor for the elect. So we can read it this way. I ask you to help these women together with Clement, also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the elect, or whose names are among the elect. Now, who is this Clement? Well, we don't know for sure. Nobody knows for sure. But a lot of people say he was the famous Bishop of Rome, if you've read any Church history at all, you know about the famous letter of Clement to the Corinthians and the bishop of Rome named Clement. Let me read you what ellicott says about the Clement mentioned here in verse three of Philippians four. Quote From the time of origin downwards, this Clement has been identified with the famous Clement Bishop of Rome and author of the well known epistle to the Church of Corinth, the Church at Corinth, of whom Irenaeus Irenaeus expressly says that he had seen and been in company with the blessed apostles and who in his epistle refers emphatically to the examples both of saint peter and saint paul as belonging to the times very near at hand but dwells especially on saint paul as seven times a prisoner in chains exiled stoned a herald of the gospel in the east and the west a teacher of righteousness to the whole world and one who penetrated to the farthest border of the west So that's Clement of Rome talking about Paul the Apostle. Sounds like he knows him pretty good. And so that's a good, I think that's a good speculation that this Clement here is the famous Clement of Rome. But we don't know. It's just interesting speculation. Now we go to verse 4 in Philippians 4, 4 and 5. Paul continues, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, that word rejoice appears eight times in the letter to the Philippians in the ESV translation, and the word joy appears five times again in the ESV translations. translation. Paul is constantly talking about joy, and he's in jail, or at least he's under house arrest. An earlier time he told the Philippians to rejoice was in Philippians 3.1a. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And this was even, I think this is when he was saying that the, his imprisonment had turned out for the progress of the gospel. He's talking about being in prison in prison, but that's okay. That's okay. Let's rejoice even though I'm in prison. Don't be sad that I'm in prison. Don't be sad that you're being persecuted. So now we get to chapter four and we find that Paul mentions rejoicing in the Lord three more times, three times. Philippians 4.10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you you have revived your concern for me. Rejoice in the Lord. He's talking about physical, financial help there. When he's rejoicing that the Philippians cared about him, and he mentions rejoicing here in verse one of oh, excuse me of chap of verse four, he mentions rejoicing again, but not only once. He says, "Rejoice in the Lord always." Again, I will say, rejoice. He mentions rejoicing twice. So that was a big light motif, if you will, of the Book of Philippians, the theme that appears over and over again. Let's rejoice. He said, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Now, he meant gentle toward each other. He did not mean gentle towards the dogs, the false teachers, the mutilators of the flesh, the Judaizers, the legalists that he had talked about in Philippians 3:18 and 19. Paul had already said some pretty harsh things about them. Let me read that. Philippians 3:18. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Does that sound gentle to you? Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. We have to understand the context. We, we are gentle toward each other. We are not gentle toward false teachers. It's as simple as that. Now, Paul finishes up this these two verses. Verse 5, he says, The Lord is near. Now, what does that mean, the Lord is near? Well, it could mean... He's near spatially because Jesus is omnipresent spiritually. Well, Jesus is omnipresent in the the form of his Holy Spirit. And so he is watching the way the Philippians treat each other. So he's saying, the Lord is near, so show your gentleness to everybody. Or it could be the Lord is near in the sense that he's ever ready to help by answering our prayers. Here's some scriptures. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He's always there to help you. He's present to help you in trouble. Psalm 46.5, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. I guess that's Israel. God's there to help. Psalms 145.18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. The Lord is near. He's ever ready to help answer our prayers. So he could be near spiritually in the sense that he's actually physically, spatially near you with the Holy Spirit. He could be near in the sense that he's always standing by, ready to help. Could be near in judgment. This is John Gill, quote, In a little while Christ will come to judgment when he will plead the cause of his people. That would be in AD 70 when Jesus came to wipe out the unbelieving Jews who murdered him and who killed the prophets. Matthew 24, 1-3, through 3, the first three verses of the Olivet Discourse say this, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Well, there's a problem with that, that Jesus is near in judgment, is that's talking about judgment on Jerusalem, not judgment on Philippi. Philippi is a good ways away from Jerusalem. Well, that's true, but the destruction of Jerusalem would also mean the destruction of the Judaizing dogs that Paul complained about in verse three, chapter 3, where he said in Philippians 3, 2, watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Those dogs would be put out of business in AD 70, so What Paul could be saying here is, look, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. You really don't have to be chasing the heretics as hard as I, with with rhetoric as harsh as I used against them, dogs, evil workers. You don't need to do that because the Lord's near. He's going to come wipe them out. Now, that's quite speculative, very speculative. It's probably not even true. He's probably just saying the Lord's near. He's, He's near to help you. He's near to watch you to watch your spirits, to see whether you're gentle or not. And I will say this, too. If they were having trouble with false teachers, this is what often happens. When you get geared up to fight heretics, sometimes it's hard to turn the switch off and be nicer toward your Christian brothers who might be wrong about something or who might need to be gently chastised, but instead you're so busy dropping bombs on heretics you turn around and drop a bomb on your Christian brother. I don't know. We are in the area of speculation here. But... Let me give you another piece of evidence that when Paul is talking about the Lord is near, he's talking about 8070, the destruction, the judgment that's coming from the Lord. James uses the same expression, the Lord is near. James 5, 8 through 9. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. So there, James is talking about judgment coming near, and I'm pretty sure that he's referring to 8070 in James 5, 8. So, if he's, he uses that same phrase in James 5, 8, that's a sort of an indication he might be using the same sort of expression here in Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is near. But, again, that's speculation. We go now to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Paul continues, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a verse, of course, that's often quoted for good reason. Be anxious for nothing. That's sort of a command, is it not? And nothing means nothing. Don't worry about anything. Here's a quote from James. Uh, excuse me, from John Gill. Quote, "Anxious solicitude for worldly things, and immoderate concern for the things of life, arising from diffidence or negligence of the power, providence, and faithfulness of God. Saints should not be anxiously or in a distressing manner concerned for the things of this world, but be content whether they have less or more, nor be overmuch pressed with what befalls them." but should cast their care upon the Lord and carry every case to him and leave it there. That's nice to think about as we approach 26 million people unemployed during the coronavirus pandemic. People are talking about Great depressions. The New York Times the other day said that maybe 130-some million people would starve to death in addition to the ones that are already going to starve to death because everybody's out of work and a lot of poor workers don't have savings, and their jobs that depend upon the economy, like tourism jobs and so forth, are gone, and they are having trouble finding food. I'm telling you, in such a world as that, are we supposed to worry about the coronavirus pandemic? What does Paul say here in Philippians 4? Be anxious for nothing. But in everything my prayer and supplication, let your request be known to God. Now, of course, he's not saying you sit back and take it when you run out of food, or you run out of money, you run out of a job. No, let your request be made known to God. And I think right here, he's talking about money, because he's getting ready in verse 10, and our next audio, he's going to be talking about money. But of course, it applies to everything. Let your request be made known to God. But he's talking about support here, I think, mainly. And what's the result of all that supplication and prayer? The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension because you can't believe how God can take care of you in the midst of your present horrible financial situation, the peace of God will guard your hearts, will keep your hearts, will surround your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Your feelings and your thoughts, hearts and your feelings, kind of your mind your mind, will and emotion, all of that is taken care of in Christ Jesus and in is in union with. In union with Christ Jesus, you don't need to worry about the coronavirus pandemic. Notice Paul says that when you pray, you do it with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is for past mercies received. The prayer and supplication that he exhorts is for future mercies to be received. Here's some other scriptures about giving thanks when you pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks. In everything. In the middle of coronavirus pandemics, give thanks. Acts 16.25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. They were praying and praising at the same time. And where were they doing this? In jail. They were thanking God, even though they were in jail. We need to continually thank God, no matter how bad our circumstances are, knowing He's got us covered. If God is with us, who is against us? Neither height nor depth, the principalities, powers, or rulers, or anything. Things present? Things past, things in the future, nothing will separate you from the love of God. got to hold on to that. Let your request be made known to God. Now, there are some people who say, what do I need to pray for? God already knows it. he's sovereign, he's omniscient, I don't need to pray. That is absolute nonsense. Completely erroneous. Because Paul says here, make your request known to God. As John Gill puts it, tell him as you would do a friend, freely and fully. All your case, pour out your souls and your complaints before him. Why? Because he wants to have a relationship with you, and asking him for help is establishing a relationship with God. He loves to help you. The other day, I had a phone call from a colleague of mine about 20 years ago at a college I used to work for before I went to China, and at that college, I enjoyed going to work for about 14 years. I mean, everybody in my business department Enjoyed each other. We had fun together. It was the most unified department on, in a, on a campus where nobody is unified about anything. And we just had a grand old time. And this crazy woman was hired and she, and she tore the department up. I said, I can't work with this nonsense. She was finally fired for filling out her own evaluations. She, she sexually harassed people. She was awful. So anyway, she got fired, but after that, the department fell apart. Everybody was suspicious of one another and backbiting and so forth, and I said, I'm out of here, and I went to China. And, of course, a lot of times I was insecure uh, about what I did because I walked out on a good, secure job, and I ended up talking to this guy, and he caught me up on what had happened after I left for the last, I don't know, 20 years ago. Scandals with the president, homosexual liaisons with the students, escorted off campus by the police, people coming in and trying to completely just wipe out the business department, buying them all out, and then he dies of a heart attack a week before that was about to happen. All kinds of turmoil and stress, and I didn't experience any of it. And I thought, you know what? God was looking out after me. He wanted me to go to China, and look at all the stuff I avoided by doing that, and I didn't realize it. Every now and then I think, oh, it was so nice to have such a secure job. No, you better thank God thank God for everything because he knows what he's doing. He cares for you. He knows what's good even when we don't know what's good. He says the peace of Christ will rule in your hearts in verse seven. Philippians four verse seven, the peace of God, not the peace of Christ, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. You can't understand how in the world you can have peace in the midst of all of the bad stuff that's happening. Colossians three fifteen, Paul says something similar. He said, "Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts." To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the peace of Christ be king in your hearts. Don't worry about nothing. What did Jesus say in the sermon on the mount? Be anxious for nothing. Basically, same thing Paul's saying here. Be in Philippians four six. Be anxious for nothing. Look at consider the birds. Do they worry about their food? Consider the lilies of the of the valley. Do they worry about their clothing? Does worry add one cubit to your lifespan? No. So don't worry. It's a waste of your time. And of course, this piece that Paul is talking about is beyond comprehension, even in his situation, because he was in jail and he was worried about getting killed because he said, about to, I, it could be that I'm poured out as a drink offer, and I, my blood might be spilled because I'm about to be killed. And he still said, I'd be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about it. He had to have had true peace to be able to write this to the Philippians. We now go to Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellent excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And I assume that the things that they learned from Paul and received from Paul were true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, and excellent, and worthy of praise. Paul was not bashful about asking people to emulate his good qualities. Now, things you've learned, that would be sort of in the mind, sort of academic, doctrinal things learned using the mind, that's one thing. Doctrinal things learned using the mind, that's one thing, but he also says the things you've learned and received, now that's different, that's taking the things into your heart and embracing those things receiving them. And heard and seed in me, he's asking them to be to follow his example, which he says in this in two other places in the scriptures. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Follow my example, and follow other people who have followed my example. And in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. So... Nothing wrong with emulating godly spiritual men, spiritual women, leaders, spiritual leaders, people who've gotten close to Christ if we're little babies. Nothing wrong with that. How would people have heard things of Paul? Well, in Paul's teaching, he was at Philippi. He started the church in Acts 16, second journey. Conversation with Paul, maybe not with formal teaching, but just hanging around Paul and talking. Maybe mutual acquaintances that knew Paul relayed information. People like Timothy and Epaphroditus could have relayed information from Paul to the Philippian church because they were back and forth between Rome and Philippi. So, if that's the case, and also he says the things you've seen in me, when you put heard and seen in there, it shows that Paul did not just academically teach doctrine. His way of life was well known to everyone, so he didn't merely teach with words. He taught with his life, and he wasn't afraid to point it out to anyone, too. He knew he wasn't perfect, Philippians 3.12, not that I've already tamed it or I've already become perfect, He knew he wasn't perfect, but nonetheless, he held himself out as a role model for the Gentile believers. Well, not just Gentile believers, but just believers in general. He asked them to imitate him, not because he was arrogant, but because he had integrity. And then he says, if you will do all this, if you practice all these things you've learned from me, guess what's going to happen? The God of peace will be with you. Now, he's already mentioned the peace of God in verse 7. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's the peace that's produced by God. And now he talks about the God of peace will be with you. Verse 7 is the peace of God. Verse 9 is the God of peace. The God of peace, that means the God who is characterized by peace. Peace, peace, everywhere there's peace. Paul emphasized rejoicing and he emphasizes peace in the Philippian letter, which is sort of counterintuitive because he's in jail facing death. Quite an example for us. Quite a role model for us. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished Philippians chapter 4. Part A, I should say. We've finished Philippians 4, 1 through 9. In our next audio, we will start with Philippians 4, verse 10. In the last half of Philippians 4, starting with verse 10, we will talk about something that could cause somebody to lose their peace and could cause somebody not to rejoice, and that's the lack of money. And Paul talks about finance in that section of Scripture. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.